If I want to be mobile, allow me to be mobile without censure. Coming up on Philosophy Talk, identities lost and found in a global age. Home is where you choose to live. Everything else is just your past. I want to think of it as having a basement full of clothes that I didn't know of. It's discovering different parts of myself, different identities. You can leave home, but can you ever leave the identity it provides you with? I don't have to be stuck with the fatalism of my parents. Our guest is Bharati Mukherjee, author of Miss New India. Being a novelist seeking identities, it's up to me to decide if I'm hyphenated or not. Identities lost and found in a global age. Bring on the dizzying change. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to our show today is coming to you from the Marsh Theater, the Bay Area's breeding ground for new performance. But our thinking originates at that notorious university across the bay called Stanford. That's where Ken and I teach philosophy because we weren't good enough to get jobs at Berkeley. <laughs> Welcome everyone to Philosophy Talk. Our topic today is identity. In particular, identities lost and found in a global age. We're thinking about the role that place and culture play in shaping an individual's identity. It used to be that people spent their entire life wherever they were born. Identities were tied to geography. Now we've entered the global age where TV, books, movies, and the internet, and planes, trains, and automobiles all break down barriers and blur cultural distinctions. One's identity is less likely to be tied to the place or even the culture of one's birth. And that makes the question of shaping an identity much, much more complicated. In the old days, people's choices about who to be were strictly limited. The options you had in life were dictated by the culture and traditions of the place you were born, as well as your social status and things like that. But now we're exposed to an incredible diversity of, of landscapes and ideas and cultural possibilities. And with all those choices now available to us, the questions, who am I? What shall I become? Those questions change dramatically. Take the United States, for example. People come here from all over the world to pursue the American dream. This is the idea that if you work hard enough, you can become whomever you want. You can construct whatever identity you envision for yourself. The reality is, of course, that most immigrants are faced with challenges that make this pretty difficult to do. Yeah, immigrants have a hard task. They have to figure out a new relationship to the culture and traditions of their homeland. They have to figure out how much of their old culture should they, they should hold on to and how much they should let go of. They have to ask themselves questions like, should I maintain my distinctive ethnic identity or should I let go of that and try to assimilate into uh, the American culture, for example? Well, gee, Ken, you make it sound like kind of like they're faced with an intellectual problem, a deliberative problem. They just have to decide to construct a new identity. The issues are making the decision. But, but 
changing geographical location doesn't suddenly give you magical abilities to change you who you are as a person. Well, I don't think there's anything magical about it, John, but I do think that changing your locale gives you new possibilities. Look, if you're born into a particular culture, you spend your whole life there knowing only that culture, and your imagination's shaped by that culture, and the, the possibilities that you envision may be just a limited set of the real possibilities, but if you're uprooted to a new place with a very different culture, suddenly your horizons of possibility, as I like to call it, shift. You, you see the world with new eyes and discover options you might n otherwise have never been able even to imagine. Horizons of possibility, huh? Yeah. Been reading a little Heidegger, Ken? Yeah, what's wrong <laughs> with that? Well, your picture may not be magical, I take it back, but it's very romantic and unrealistic. Migrants don't arrive into a world of unlimited possibilities. Compare the experience of a wealthy person from England who immigrates to the U.S. and that of someone who migrates to do farm work in California from Mexico. How they respond in the new circumstances, those are going to be very limited by their background, their education, the amount of money they have, the vocabulary they have, the language they speak. How each one responds to their new circumstances depends on all this stuff. I just don't see how this horizon of possibilities uh, quite works. I mean, if there's a horizon of possibilities, it's a very clouded very limited horizon. John, you're, such a, you're, you're kind of a pessimist. You're stuck in the old world, and we're just going to have to disagree here. We're going to have to dig into this, but, but I think identities are much, much more plastic and mutable th than you're allowing. And I, and I believe that changing geographical locations can bring about a radical transformation in your horizon of possibilities. And, but look, you don't even need to change locations anymore for that to happen. In the global age, we're exposed to so many disparate ideas coming at us through the internet and through all the global media that identities are just no longer fixed anyway. The virtual world has completely diminish the power of geography, of mere geography, to shape identity. So, as usual, we got a lot to sort out. To what degree do place and culture determine one's identity, even if one moves away from that place? Are identities something we freely, autonomously choose? Or are they mostly things that were thrown into or thrust upon us? How important is it to hold on to your distinct ethnic identity when you come to a foreign land. So, and you know, John, there's been a curious reversal of migration trends in the U.S. The children of immigrants are actually emigrating back to their parents' countries. We sent our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Ash, out to trace one such journey. She files this report. This is a story about the American dream. About college-educated 20-somethings working hard, making money, and enjoying material comforts. But more and more, when the dream cannot be fulfilled here in the United States, they're packing up and moving abroad. Kirk Semple is a Metro reporter for the New York Times, where he covers immigration. A while back, Semple started hearing anecdotally about an uptick in a certain kind of migration. Tens of thousands of Americans and other enterprising people from around the world have migrated to China, India, Brazil, and, and countries like that in pursuit of opportunity. The most striking thing Semple learned was the unrest this migration created within families. In most cases, immigrant parents of American children had made huge sacrifices to bring their families to the U.S. Their children were deciding to 
follow of a reverse track and seeking those very same opportunities yet in the countries that their parents had forsaken. So in a sense, uh, they were propelled by some of the same forces that their parents were propelled by, except they were going in the opposite direction. Take the case of Margaret Tran, a 26-year-old ethnic Chinese woman who dreamed of working on Wall Street. She graduated from Cornell in 2009 at the height of the economic recession. So she announced to her father that she was going to uh, head to China and, and see what she could uh, conjure up there. And uh, he, was, he was confused by it, she said. And like many parents, I think he regarded it, uh, her decision as uh, kind of a step back. Hello. Hi, Margaret. It's Caitlin. Hey. How are you? Hi, Fine, thanks. How are you? I found Tran on Skype. She works for a corporate consulting firm in Shanghai, where she helps bring new companies to China. Compared to what her friends are doing in the U.S., she says her work is exciting and she likes life there a lot. But Tran says that's hard for her parents to understand, especially her father. Even now, three years after being in China, he's still against the idea of me being here. And I know it whenever I talk to him and, he, and he'll say to me, Margaret, you've been in China for over two years now, so what's your plan next? Inferring, when are you going to move back to the US? Tran's mother's family lived through China's cultural revolution. Her father's family fled China for Cambodia, just in time for that country's devastating war in the early 70s. To him, first world countries like France and the US um, are such comfortable places to live in. I think his mentality is, why, why would you ever want to leave those countries? Her parents left Asia for France, where Tran was born and spent the first 11 years of her life. Then they moved to the United States. Tran's father lives in Seattle, where he's a cook at a Chinese restaurant. I guess you could say his whole life he had worked to um, give his children uh, a better life, first in France and then later in the U.S. But Tran says that's partly why she wanted to move to Shanghai in the first place, to reconnect with her father's past. Until recently, Tran says she never had a fluent conversation with her parents. They don't speak English. Tran's Mandarin was broken. So the family communicated through a mixture of French and Mandarin. By living in China, Tran says she feels a little bit closer to her family's roots and her own identity is starting to come into focus. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Esch. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.